continuing to ask the question this Advent season, why Christ came? John 6, beginning at verse 25. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father hath set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He hath sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, once again, we thank You for this Advent season as we think about the Word becoming flesh. And this morning we think about Him offering Himself to us to take care of our thirst, to take care of our hunger. Father, we are a hungry people. We are a thirsty people. We ask that You would meet our deepest needs. And thank You for this passage that shows us where we can go to find the satisfaction that we all long for. Father, help us to find this satisfaction. Help us to feast on Christ and to find Him to be all that He promises. Again, we pray in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Henry Scrugel once made the comment that the soul of man has in it a raging and inextinguishable thirst. Can any of you relate to that? The truth is, every single one of us are hedonists at the core of our being. Everybody longs to be happy, and everybody relentlessly pursues happiness. This is just a given of human nature. Blaise Pascal made the comments, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. But here's the kicker. The happiness that we all long for, the happiness that we're all pursuing, is so evasive. As soon as we think we've grabbed it, it's like grasping the wind. As soon as we think it's in our clutches, it slips right through our fingers. In his book, Cries of the Heart, Robbie Zacharias tells the story of the great French author of the 19th century, Guy de Maupassant, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Maupassant wrote short stories, and within ten years, he rose from obscurity 
to fame. His material possessions manifested a life of affluence, a yacht in the Mediterranean, a large house on the Norman coast, and a luxurious flat in Paris. It was said of Mossapont that critics praised him, men admired him, and women worshipped him. Yet, at the height of his fame, he went insane. And a condition brought on by a sexually transmitted disease, many think, made him mad. On New Year's Day in 1892, he tried to cut his throat with a letter opener, and he lived out the last weeks of his life in a private asylum on the French Riviera. After months of mindless utterances and debilitating pain, he died at the young age of 42. Mossapont penned his own epitaph. He wrote, I have coveted everything and taken pleasure in nothing. Isn't that a tragedy? Mossapont's story surprises us because the vast majority of people have the subconscious presupposition that if they just had a little more money, if they just had a little more fame, if they just had a little more success, then, finally, they would be happy. So we're surprised when we see a man who has everything that we're trying to accumulate, and he's not happy in the least. It throws us for a loop. Wouldn't it be a tragedy to spend your whole life Climbing the ladder of success, only to reach the top of the ladder and find out that it was leaning against the wrong building. <laughs> now, this Advent season, as I said, this Christmas season, we are considering why Christ came to earth. And right away, of course, we think of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came to earth. He took on flesh so that he could live a perfect life, so that he could suffer in our place die on our behalf through faith in Him, we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. But the Bible gives us many definitions and illustrations of the Gospel. Another definition of the Gospel that we will look at next week in Sunday school class is found in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, where Paul describes the Gospel as the Gospel of the glory of Christ. So in that verse, the Gospel is seeing the glory of Christ because our blind eyes are opened. In Mark 1, we're given another definition of the Gospel. There, we're told that the Gospel is the coming of the Kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So there, the good news is with the coming of Jesus Christ is the coming of the Kingdom. And through repentance and faith, we can enter into the Kingdom. Here in John 6, I think we have another definition of the Gospel or another angle of the Gospel, if you will. And here I want to define the Gospel as coming to Jesus for the ultimate satisfaction of your soul. Coming to Jesus for the ultimate satisfaction of your soul. And we'll arrive at that conclusion as we consider three points. I want us to look at the desperate pursuit of satisfaction and then the deceptive illusion of satisfaction and then the true source of satisfaction. So let's begin with the desperate pursuit of satisfaction. John 6.25 When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
Now let me back up a little bit so you can see what's taking place. 6.1, we read, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following Him. So wherever Jesus goes across land, across sea, the large crowds are following Jesus. And then we're told, because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. In other words, they saw the miracles. And putting it in the vernacular of our day, they said, this is awesome! Look at what this guy can do. And they would just follow this guy everywhere. D.A. Carson makes this observation about miracles or signs. He says, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. Now, that's very important. If you'll remember from our time in the Gospel of John, John never uses the word miracle. Whenever Jesus does a quote-unquote miracle, John refers to it as a sign. And John is intentional in using that word sign because he wants us to see that what Jesus is doing is not just a miracle. It's not just a naked display of power. It's a miracle that's meant to point to something beyond the act. It's meant to point to the fact that Jesus Christ is more than just a mere man. He is the man in whom God seal is upon. He is the prophet to come. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And the signs were intended to help people to see that. If you'll recall, after Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine, we read in John 2.11, this the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. So the miracles, the signs, are manifestations of the glory of Jesus Christ. And we read, and His disciples believed in Him. That's the purpose of the signs. To reveal the glory of Jesus Christ to tell us, wow, this is more than a man. This is God in the flesh. And to induce faith on our part so that we would be saved. That's the purpose of the miracles. Now notice here, the crowds, they see the signs. But do they really see the signs? We'll come back to that in a minute. So in John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. They are all very hungry. Jesus feeds them. They all think this is absolutely wonderful. We read in verse 13, So they gathered them up, talking about the leftovers, and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Here, they're referring to what Moses had said uh, many centuries earlier when he said, God will raise up a prophet from among your own number and him you must listen to. They see the sign and they come to the conclusion, this must be the prophet that was promised to us. So they're at least a little bit on the right track. Verse 15, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's fascinating. Jesus knows they want to make him king, and they're going to make him king by force. They're, they're going to come, they're going to gang tackle him, and they're going to drag him off to the kingdom, as it were, and place him on the throne and say, rule over us. Now, why are they going to do that? It's very simple. He gives them bread. The political implications here are very clear and very powerful. If you, as a political leader, can give all kinds of goodies to people, they are more than happy to make you king and bow down before you and worship you. Jesus has just fed them. And they say, this is great! We found our king! And they wanted to make him king by force. But Jesus will not become king by force. 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boats, and they were frightened. Better believe they were. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So that Jesus and his disciples, they're all together. There was one boat. The disciples went to the other side. Jesus didn't get in that boat. Um, they don't know what happened to Jesus. There's other boats there. They say, well, let's get in this boat. We know that the disciples are over there. Maybe we'll find Jesus eventually. But they are seeking after Jesus. And again, why are they seeking after Jesus? For the bread. He's their meal ticket. He can give them their next meal. Verse 25. When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, I know many teachers say, there's no such thing as a stupid question, right? Class, feel free to ask whatever question. There's no such thing as a stupid But if there were a stupid question, this would be a stupid question. Because they are missing it. They ask, when did you come here? The real question is, how did you get here? John made a big deal out of the fact that there was only one boat. The disciples got into it. Jesus did not get into it. They saw that he did not get into it. But there were other boats, so they got into those boats. John makes it very clear they, that they had no idea where Jesus was. Now they see him on the other side of the sea. And their first question should be, how did he get over here? And I think John is subtly communicating they're missing who they are. They're certainly not entertaining the idea that he just walked over here. Uh, be that as it may, the passage continues on. 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not 
because you saw the signs. Now, wait a second. Didn't we just read a little earlier that they were seeking Jesus because they did see the signs? We have a contradiction here. We don't have a contradiction. They saw the signs, but they did not see the signs. This isn't uh, word games. They saw the miracles. They saw the power in the signs, but they did not see what the signs were pointing to. And that was the identity of Jesus. That they didn't recognize. So when Jesus says, you're not seeking me because you saw the signs, He means you're not seeking me because you recognize who I am. And then he clarifies at the end of 26, you're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. That's why you're coming to me. Because I gave you something to eat and you would like me to take you out to dinner once again pick up the tab. That's how we'd say in our context. Now, let me warn you at this point, um, it is not wrong to pray for daily bread. It's not wrong to turn to Jesus and say, give us this day our daily bread. In fact, that's how He told us to pray. But, if that is all you are praying for, something is wrong. Because then you're just using Jesus to get stuff. You're using Him like a genie in a bottle to get other things that you really want instead of Him. So we need to be careful here. So the crowd, they are desperately in pursuit of satisfaction. They think that Jesus can give it to them. And that brings us to our second point. The deceptive illusion of satisfaction. And I have two points under this heading. First, we often think that little trinkets can bring satisfaction. We often think that the stuff that they sell us in the mall will bring us satisfaction. For the Israelites right here, they thought one more meal will bring us satisfaction. What does Jesus say? 27. Do not labor for food that perishes. And can I be honest here? That's what many of us do. Don't we? We labor for food that perishes. Even as Christians. We work hard for that thing over there because we think, boy, if I, if I just had it, then I'd be happy. And then we get it and we're all excited for about a week and a half and then we just kind of toss it to the side. Kind of like a child on Christmas Day. He opens up the present. This is the exact toy I've wanted. I'm so happy. A week later, they don't even know where the toy is because they're just bored with it. Working for food that perishes. Jesus goes on and He says, do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. Now, this is interesting. Jesus tells them, don't work for food that perishes. Rather, work for food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is saying, here's your problem. Your problem is not that you want to be happy. That's not a problem. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be satisfied. Everybody wants to be fulfilled. That's not a problem. The problem is you're pursuing all that over here and it's not going to satisfy. And the problem is you're settling for too little. 
You're settling for too little. You're coming to me so I can give you one more meal. You have no idea of what I would give you. It's like if your dad was Donald Trump and you're in financial trouble and you say, Dad, could I have $10? You have no idea what he can give you. Our desires often are not too strong or too weak. This is what C.S. Lewis said. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has kept crept in from Kant's and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think that's quite profound. We are far too easily pleased. We're settling for so little. That's what Jesus is saying to the Israelites. You're settling for too little. You're coming to me for bread. It's just going to perish. When I could offer you so much more. There's another deceptive illusion here, and that relates to the issue of attaining satisfaction. We think if I just worked a little harder, perhaps then I can attain the satisfaction that I'm longing for. Verse 28. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, this is in response to Jesus' offer. Don't work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give you. Notice, He's he's going to give it to you. It's a gift. You don't work for it. You don't pay for it. You don't earn it. It's a gift. He'll give it to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. And then their response to that is, hey, just tell us what we have to do. See, they think they, they have to do something. We have to earn it. You know what? You can't earn it. It's a gift from God. Turn to Ecclesiastes, if you will. Ecclesiastes comes right after Psalms and then Proverbs. And I want you to see that every single thing you have comes from God. Everything you have. Every hair on your head comes from God. Every thought in your mind is because God's given you the ability to think. Every gift that you have comes from God. Everything comes from God. Including enjoyment. Look at Ecclesiastes 2 beginning at verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toll. This also I saw is from the hand of God. 
That's from God. Including the enjoyment. Look at verse 25. For apart from Him, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? That's profound. Even your enjoyment comes from God. So if you take a bite of steak and you say, wow, that's good. If you take a sip of a glass of wine and you say, oh, that's good. Thank God for that. That is a gift from God. Turn ahead to Ecclesiastes 5, beginning at verse 19. It says the same thing again. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toll, this is the gift of God. For He will not much remember the days of His life because God keeps Him occupied with joy in His heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavily on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing that all he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. Isn't that profound? God not only gives wealth, possessions, and honor, but God is the one who gives us the power to enjoy them. And that's why some people who appear to have it all in the standards of this world nevertheless are miserable because God has not given them the power to enjoy it. This is very important. Let let us not think that attaining satisfaction is within our grasp. If we can just get that, or if we can just have that, then I'll be happy. This is a gift from God. Everything is a gift from God. You say, you really do believe in the sovereignty of God. I do. It extends to absolutely everything that is a part of our being. I remember a number of years ago, we had a Thanksgiving Eve service and we just took time going around the room saying what we were thankful for. And and one man said, I'm thankful that I'm thankful. And you know what? That really is a gift from God. The ability to be thankful because not everybody is. Even that is from God. Turning back to John 6.29 Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. It's coming on their turf. Okay, you want to know what work you need to do? I'll tell you what work you need to do. By the way, notice that he takes it from the plural to the singular. They said, What works do we need to be doing? And he said, This is the work of God. He said, Work singular. There's only one work that you have to do. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's the work of God. Believe in Jesus Christ. And then you will be satisfied. Then you will enjoy this bread that wells up to eternal life. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Okay. You're asking us to believe in you. What sign will you do? And at this point, don't you want to just bang your forehead? It's like, oh, 
what fine. Well, remember the, the lame man that he, that he raised up? Remember the, the son that was dying? And, and, and remember the feeding of the 5,000? I mean, what, what sign will he do? Good night. How, how many signs does he have to do? And, and now you say you need another sign. Sign, sign everywhere. Sign. It's not good enough. You know, it never be good enough. But notice what they say. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They said, well, if you'll just do one more sign, if you'll give us bread from heaven, like Moses gave our forefathers bread from heaven, then we'll believe. By, by the way, this, this uh, suggestion that they're giving to Jesus, they didn't pull out of thin air. What are they after? Another meal. Yeah, they want more bread. So they say, well, Jesus, how about this? Let's see, our, our forefathers had manna in the wilderness for 40 years. How about for the next 40 years, every morning you rain down bread from heaven? If, if you would just do that, then, then we'll believe in you. See, they're not getting that Jesus Himself is the source. They're still thinking it's the bread that He can give us. So He's going to help them out with their theology a little bit in 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He. Okay, The bread of God is a person who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And of course, he's talking about himself. Do they get it yet? Nope. 34. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. The word always is very interesting. Give us this bread always. We could interpret it this way. Give us this bread every single day. Then we'll be satisfied. They're, they're not understanding that he's pointing to himself. And this brings us to our final point, the true source of satisfaction. And then Jesus speaks directly so they can finally get it in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I incarnate the bread of life. You need to come to me. You need to believe in me. And then you will be satisfied like you have never been satisfied in your life. G.K. Chesterton made the astute observation that it's not that Christianity has been found lacking, but it's that Christianity has been found difficult, therefore people don't try it. People see it as something difficult and they turn away from it. When God is continually calling people to Himself. And by the way, this presentation of the Gospel is nothing new. If you turn back to Isaiah 55... I find great overlap between what we read in Isaiah 55 and what Jesus is saying in John 6. Isaiah 55. And I also want to assert that Isaiah 
55 is the Old Testament gospel. This is evangelism under the Old Covenant, if you will. Isaiah 55, beginning at verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts. You see the overlap? Come, all you people out there who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Now that might be frustrating right there. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Well, if I don't have any money, how can I buy what you're selling? The answer is very easy because what God is selling doesn't have a price tag on it. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Very simply, it's a free gift that I'm offering you. And then verse 2, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? And again, doesn't that sound just like John 6? Why are you going after this bread that doesn't satisfy? Why are you working for this right here that's not going to take care of that huge chasm in your soul that will not be satisfied? You're going in the wrong direction. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. So we have all all these metaphors. Come to the waters. Come to the wine. Come to the milk. Delight yourself in rich food. And then in verse 3, we do away with the metaphors and it becomes very clear. Incline your ear and come to me. That's what God is saying. God is saying, come to me. We could state it this way. I'm your water. I'm your milk. I'm your wine. I'm your bread. That will take care of your thirst. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. God says, come to me and I will give you life. So if we want to talk about happiness, joy, satisfaction, the way it's defined here and the way it's defined in John 6 is life. Come to me and you will experience life. And that's why Jesus came down from heaven to earth so that we could have life in all its fullness. See, we need to understand the world says if if I can only have all things, then I'll enjoy life. God says, I've come to give you life and then you can enjoy all things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the gifts that God has given to us. Our God is a material God. He took on flesh and blood so we can enjoy the good gifts that He has given to us. We just must not be deceived and think that ultimate satisfaction and life is found there. Life is only found in God and in Jesus Christ. And we, when we come to Him, then that deep inner thirst and hunger will be taken care of. Melka Muggeridge uh, was one of England's most articulate journalists. Uh, for many years, um, he lived as an unbeliever. In describing those years, uh, he used this subtitle, He referred to it as the chronicle of wasted years. But then he became a believer and his life was transformed. This is what he said. I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being 
as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. I might happen once in a while, or excuse me, it might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one drought of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty irrespective of who they are or what they have done. Malcolm Muggard said, I've achieved all this, but it's nothing compared to one drop of eternal water that Jesus gives. And that's what Jesus is trying to say in this passage right here. If you will just come to me, if you will just believe in me, that aching satisfaction that's driving you, that seems inextinguishable, will be extinguished. And you'll experience life in all its fullness. If you will only, as the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray.